Bing. Okay. So, I think this is working. Hi, Nicholas. How are you doing today? Hi. G'day. Very well, thanks, Peyton. Uh, good. Good. So, it's great to talk to you today. Um, so I thought we're all we're now we're now on our best behaviour, having <laughs> had a having had a back room conversation uh, that, before this one. That's true. That's true. Makes it easier to get things going. That's for sure. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, I just thought we could kick things off earlier. You know, you were talking to me a little bit about how you don't have a favorite book, which I thought was a very interesting uh, thing mm. to say. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. So I often get asked when people, especially younger people, and they'll talk to me and they'll decide that I've got something to say. They'll decide here's someone who sort of says interesting things and says things that I haven't sort of heard someone else say before, and then they will start plying me, <laughs> sometimes for advice, you know, sort of tips. But also one of the questions is, well, can you recommend, or, or I might have expressed some interesting ideas to them, and then they'll say, can you tell me some books I can read to really get um, on top of those ideas? Yeah. And, the, and, and, and when it first happened, I thought to myself, well, I felt rather inadequate. I could never think of these books that had changed my life or anything like that. And I, I put this down to my um, inherent dullness, I suppose, that I don't seem to, uh, this doesn't seem to happen to me. I could say it's happened to me with regard to people, but then usually not just a few hours exposure to a person, but a much, much longer exposure. But the more, the older I get, the more I think that this, just makes perfect sense for me because all of the whatever pathetic uh, amounts of intellectual growth I can claim to have made comes from figuring stuff out, um, comes from a series of, you know, a tip, if you like, is I, so, so my background was, uh, I, I'm fond of saying that I'm trained in economics and the only education I ever got was in history. And what history taught me was a few things that you can have. I remember being given in second year history, we had two books, one written by a guy called Hans Baron, and he'd spent the previous 30 and was on the, what, it was on the Renaissance in Italy. And he, he'd made his life's work of this and then, uh, uh, and so he'd written it when he was 60 or something. And then someone came along a decade or so later and said this was all, it just completely debunked it. And we were given these two books and, and a debate in the journal articles and told to interpret this. And I thought, well, these guys have spent their entire adult lives studying this stuff. Anyway, as I read the sources, I just thought, no, the guy who's debunking the earlier bloke is just right. <laughs> uh, he's just the, the the earlier bloke is 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 just um, he's landed these huge blows on what he's saying, and then this other guy, then the guy comes back with sort of excuses and ad hominem and so on. Now that's sort of lesson one that that the learning starts quickly if you're trying to sort of pay attention and sort of uh, in a little bit of economic jargon sort of mark individual ideas to market in other words say okay this is the claim that's made 
I'm going to kind of drown, ground truth that claim, and yes, that claim seems to be right, which means that one-third of this book is really kind of on the wrong track. The, the second idea, again from history, is uh, the philosopher Collingwood, uh, R.G. Collingwood, who writes about walking past the Albert Memorial, and I always think of this whenever I see the Albert Memorial in London, and he's walking past the Albert Memorial, and it slowly begins to obsess him because he thinks Gilbert Scott was a great architect. He built this thing. I hate everything about it. How could... And then eventually, after... And he walks past it every day. He's actually working for intelligence services in World War One. And then one day he's walking past it and he thinks, well, maybe I'm asking the wrong questions. Maybe I need to ask myself, what was he trying to achieve? What was he trying to do? And this, for him... It's his way. I'm sure it's a little bit like we all tell stories which make things rather too neat. But this is a, a sort of origin story of his whole philosophy of meaning and so on. So what does this mean? It means to me that whenever, whenever someone says something that I really strongly disagree with or find very surprising, I firstly ask, do I respect that person? Because a lot of things are said that are said by Donald Trump and any number of other people, uh, and I, yeah, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But once it gets through that filter, I then have to do ask this Collingwood question, which is to say, well, how are they looking at something differently to the way I'm looking at something? So it's a very long-winded story, but it means that I can read a book and I can, and it sort of is there as a set of resources, a set of tools, a set of ideas, but not really a recipe. Uh, and and I'm just having to do that myself. Yeah. Uh, and again, I've got another little formula. I, I sometimes don't really like these formulas, but there we are. Um, when I say I have to give a talk to economists, young economists recently, and I said, you come out of uni and you think that doing economics in the professional world is 80% what you studied at uni and 20% fitting it to the situation. And most of your peers think that, and so that's kind of what it is, but it really should be the other way around. You've got a set of resources and you've got to come up with productive ways of using those resources to reflect on what uh, is in front of you. And there are so many different ways to do that. And... Um, People are not trained in it. That's one of the reasons COVID has been so bad, because bleedingly obvious things to do are not what people have been trained to do, and they don't do them. Oh. Here ended the, the lecture. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, recently I've been working my way through this long autobiographical, autobiographical novel by uh, this Norwegian writer, Carl Ove Knausgaard. I think that's the right way to pronounce it. Uh, right. And, um, you know, his, his ability to produce uh, writing is just, uh, it's just really, in some ways, unprecedented. He's like, he can write at the speed and in the, with the productivity of some of these, uh, like some of these pulp writers of, you know, the early 20th century. Yeah. But at the same time, he, he produces what, I, you know, I, I think you would at least consider pretty, pretty uh, high-level literary fiction. It's not, you know, maybe as high-level as someone like Melville or some of these other people, or you know, there are, there are certainly contemporary writers who I think 
maybe pay more attention to the, the diction or the written word and things like that. But still, it's, it's very good, in my opinion. And um, I was reading about, you know, he was talking when he was younger, he said, when I first was a writer, <clears throat> I would read articles uh, about how other writers did their work. Because I was curious, you know, what's the way in which you have to, to work mm. to become a successful writer? And I think a lot of people get interested in that question. Does this writer use a computer? Does this writer use uh, write by hand? Whatever it may be. Or, you know, do they work in the morning? Do they work at night? This kind of, mm. These kind of endless questions, right? And he yeah. said, then I realized every writer is an amateur, you know? And in yeah. some ways, yeah. I, I think... Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And no. I think that that's really interesting. Like, if you think about it this way, you know, every thinker, even even the really great ones, including, you know, of course, going back to people like Plato or, uh, you know, other ancient thinkers or people in the modern era who sort of dominate the philosophical landscape, like Kant or whoever, in some senses, though they may have been in very academic environments, they had to approach their work as amateurs in a sense. And um, I don't think they would have made the breakthroughs they had made if they hadn't, um, if they tried to approach, you know, everything by, okay, this is by, by the book that I'm going to base everything on, on mm. thinking mm. on, or something Absolutely. along these lines. It's, it's one of the reasons why I really dislike the term expert, mm -hmm. uh, because expert carries this idea of credentials, of the body of things that you must know. Uh, and yeah, I think that idea of amateurism is, um, uh, well, amateurism, you know, the subtlety of the English language, yeah. whether you want to say that someone should be amateurish, but, but that's absolutely right. If you're doing something, and again, we valorize it with terms like innovation and all this stuff, but if you, it, it doesn't have to be incredibly innovative. It is, if you are going to think for yourself, you're going to have to be an amateur about most of it. You're going to have to make new starts a lot um, and false starts and all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, that's, uh, you know, our intellectual culture, not just within universities. I mean, it's in a terrible state within universities. But generally, I suppose, here's a theory, if you like, that intellectual uh, thought, people trying to figure stuff out is a highly status conscious activity. Human beings are highly status conscious. And that then feeds into, you know, people showing that they've read Hannah Arendt and they've read this and they've read that. And then they'll say something's Nietzschean or this, that and the other. Um, and of course you want to, um, you know, you want to be aware of what really thoughtful people have said. And some people, you know, you some people have said some amazingly simple and insightful things. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm right on the other end of the spectrum. So there's, there's virtually no thinker that I'm really well read in, but I've read lots of thinkers and I regard myself as you know, and I talk about lots of thinkers. People will appeal to me, Alistair McIntyre, Aristotle, uh, although most of my ideas from Aristotle are secondhand through, uh, through McIntyre, yeah. um, Michael Polanyi, R.G. Collingwood, Nietzsche, um, teensy bit of Foucault. Um, but I, you know, I don't read... Uh, 
I, I don't go and get myself. I mean, I tried to read um, uh, Hannah Arendt's uh, Origins of Totalitarianism, and I've read some big chunks of it, and I've found it very interesting. I'm not going to read my way all through it. Um, I get I get the idea. I get the idea. Uh, what's, uh, you know, from the field of economics, uh, you spoke a little bit about how sometimes the economic uh, you spoke to me a little bit in another conversation about how sometimes yep. the, the economic discipline uh, gets so wrapped up in these abstract models and misses, let's say, the real life behavior. I think you mentioned a, a bank teller or something like this. Um, uh, how do you think this this way of approaching, let's say, other thinkers or other uh, other disciplines applies to that field? Okay, so so I think if I, I roughly remember what I said there, which is, and, and this came from a friend of mine called Henry Ergas, who read it somewhere. Um, and and the, 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 the line of inquiry, the line of critique goes like this. Uh, eco economics tells you that, or, or most of economics, the apparatus of economics works on the idea that people follow their self-interest. Now look at, just focus on what a bank teller does sits at, let's make him a he in this case, sits at his desk, does stuff, rings people, sees somebody needs service, gets up, serves them at the counter. Uh, now, of course, an economist, if I'm trying to sort of have an argument with an economist, an economist will say, yes, that's all, there's a perimeter around that defined by his self-interest. If he doesn't do that reasonably well, he will get sacked. That's true. Uh, but within that, there's a huge amount of freedom. And the texture of the bank teller's life is not his self-interest. It is doing his job. Um, now, economics takes virtually no interest in that at all. If you like, that's a sort of, again, to get to use a ridiculously long word, that's a phenomenological analysis. Um, uh, but it's, you know, I call it paying attention. It's, it's uh, again, I prefer to quote Jerry Seinfeld in one of his routines. He says, girls, he's talking about men and women, of course, and he says, girls, I think he says, girls, do you want to know what we're thinking? And they say yes, and he says, we're not thinking anything. We're just walking around, looking around. <laughs> so... Phenomenology, or this approach, what I call paying attention, is walking around, looking around, and looking particularly, and Gillian Tett says something similar, and she's an anthropologist who's written for the Financial Times and has just published a book. I think it's called Anthrovision. Um, and she says, we specialise, or one of the, we specialise, I didn't know this, I didn't get taught any anthropology, but we specialise in in exploring the territory between what people do and what people tell themselves that they're doing. Uh, and I overlay that with a further requirement because I'm because uh, you can do that in a million different ways and there are plenty of interesting ways to do it. And if you're a novelist or someone who's trying to sort of enrich our culture, I suppose you can do it and you can take that in many directions. I'm trying to take it in the direction of usefulness. I'm trying to say 
that if we have a program where we're trying to reduce recidivism in prisons, where we're trying to address remedial, you know, mental health and um, uh, and dyslexia or whatever, that um, if at some stage you want to take some tools out of the economist's toolbox and you'll do some statistics on a bunch of populations, you may be able to find out all kinds of really interesting things. But pay attention to all the opportunities that exist that are not in an economics textbook. Mm. They're of the essence. Now, then someone can say, well, don't get an economist, you know, get an anthropologist or a specialist in that area. And, and, and I don't think that's satisfactory. It's a very good idea not to put economists in charge. <laughs> but I don't think that's at all satisfactory. I think we need to have um, knowledgeable people who are trying to pay attention to the same problem and help each other do that and to be useful doing it. And we are a million miles from there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting, this, this idea of, too, like, um, the, what was that territory between what people are doing and what they're telling themselves they're doing? Because yeah. to me also, and it kind of gets back to this theme of, of books, what really is valuable to me when I read a book is, and this often happens when I'm reading fiction and maybe there's a sense in which studying history brings about the same kind of uh, thing as well. But there's, a, there's a, these opportunities to kind of reflect on on yourself and you see some a character doing something in a book and yeah. actually this now scar is a really good example of this you see him doing something in his life and him reflecting on it and then you see and then you then have this space to sort of see oh yeah there, there was a gap there with me as well between what i i thought i was doing this for and what i was actually doing this for and so um, yeah. and yeah. to me that, that that's fundamentally you know i do think i would say i have a few favorite books but uh usually they're the works that have brought about that kind of revelation. And, uh, and well, well, I have some favourite books too, and I would say that the, I can't think of one that's really brought about a big revelation. I mean, Collingwood's autobiography, I've just mm -hmm. been rereading a bit of it. Um, Alistair McIntyre's uh, After Virtue. Um, so I have favourite things I can suggest <laughs> yeah, to people. Um, I mean, Nietzsche's On Lie and On Truth and Lie and An Extra Moral Sense is very mm -hmm. early. Uh, a very early thing in which in about eight pages he says he sort of gets over the essence of all of his all of his uh, all of these ideas that he would develop throughout his life I mean just stunning stuff just completely stunning um, and um, yeah so I have favorites but 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 I, it may be another way it may be another way to Put this. I know you're interested in Plato's Meno and the idea of education, whether education, whether there is such a thing as learning a new thing, or whether it's more like remembering something. And perhaps what I'm saying is that I can't really understand a book until I've got uh, until I until it I've done enough thinking so that what I encounter is reminding me not of myself. It's enriching me. But it's um, I'm cl I've I've got far enough to see that these ideas have some real substance. Yeah, 
Yeah, they sort of become a, little, a part of yourself in some sense, right? Mm. Well, I read a book. I, I remember being hugely impressed by. Um, I might have told. I might have said this to you before. I, I remember being hugely impressed by Collingwood, uh, the the philosopher R.G. Collingwood, when I was studying history, and I came upon. I don't know, a few decades ago, I came upon a an article that he wrote in 1926, I think, called Economics as a Philosophical Science. I thought, beauty. And I read this thing with great anticipation, and I I, I sort of didn't know why he was writing these things. I mean, I, everything he wrote I could understand. And um, I then reread it about, well... Um, you're familiar with some of this. Some of these ideas that I've worked back to, um, and in which I've made a big deal of the idea that competition and cooperation are not opposites; they're two sides of the same coin. They mutually define each other. And there, in Collingwood, in a sentence in 1926 about economics, he says, "Economics is the world." I, I, I can, you know, I don't know whether I can't get it quickly, but economics is the world in which people cooperate to compete, mm. as in a chess game, mm. which summarise, you know, now I, I knew that someone would have said this before, and I'd made it this very simple idea that there is no cooperation without, that, that when people cooperate, they define that. By cooperating, they define the terms of the cooperation. He's making the same point. Now, I didn't think that this was a brilliant logical insight of mine, but I'd, I've never seen an economist make it, uh, make it, make it, think about it and and put it, put it in, you know, put it out there and ruminate on, ponder it. Um, and I'm, you know. I'm pursuing this idea that it's worth pondering. I'm pursuing this idea that it's worth, uh, this is a great starting point, a great place to start, or one place to start among a number, to think about economic phenomena, what, uh, what, what, uh, and, and uh, what constitutes them, how we can optimise them for our own well-being, uh, and so on. Um, so there you are. That's a nice illustration of Minnow uh, that I couldn't understand it until I was remembering having thought of it myself or thought of something similar. And again, I mentioned Michael Polanyi, and Michael Polanyi makes this statement that, out, that, that scandalised Karl Popper, and he described himself as an Augustinian, and it was Augustine, St Augustine, who said until you believe you cannot understand. Mm. And, of course, people yeah. with a weak grasp of science think that that's obscurantist and sort of absurd uh, and occult. Mm. And, of course, it's nothing of the kind. Yeah. And now you can agree or disagree or it's, it's really... I don't, it's not the kind of thing I want to agree or disagree with, it's a starting point. Yeah, yeah that's what yeah. It, it is a starting point for thought. Um, uh, so, 
Yes. I don't know whether you want me to explain that further. I suspect you understand it, but if anyone ever listens to this, they may not. So maybe I should, my, my, my instinct is to say that maybe I should say a bit more. But what, anyway, maybe you should say a bit more. Maybe you should say what you make of that idea. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I, I'm, I'm also working to kind of think through um, some of the implications to it, because there's certainly a, an aspect to that that resonates. And, um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of um, some concerns that, that are sometimes overblown and sometimes very legitimate, let's say, uh, about the idea, I, I guess, of cultural appropriation in some sense. You know, if I am let's say, not a member of a, a community, and I, you know, I start to wear clothing associated with a community or something along these lines. And I, I don't mean this in an extremely political sense, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to address when or when yep. this is inappropriate, but, but the, yep. the, the idea of, you know, the, I think the, the objection at some level is that here's someone who is doing this and acting like they understand, but they don't understand. They they just sort of like something they see, but they don't understand yeah, it yeah, because yeah. they don't they don't have that belief or they don't have that investment or that identity yeah. that's rooted in this idea. And yeah. so, um, uh, you know, I, I usually uh, and I I never really thought of this as a potentially kind of Platonic idea in some senses, but it but it kind of is in that. Um, and it's this weird inversion of Plato because in some ways with Plato, everything becomes uh, detached from culture. You know, you have these pure forms that don't, um, that, you know, you can appreciate roundness, whether you're from uh, one country or from another country or from one culture, or another culture, it doesn't change what roundness is, let's say, for example. But, <clears throat> but if you are, let's say, trying to express, um, an idea or to use a kind of way of thinking or, or, or way of expressing oneself. And you've, you've acquired that knowledge through some means other than let's say this kind of this process of let's say remembering it or, or somehow I, or connecting it with your identity. There's something kind of cheap about that, that I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, um, and also, in some ways, you might even, to kind of bring it back to this discussion of, let's say, an academic discipline, in some ways, perhaps an academic discipline could be used as a mechanism for acquiring, let's say, these, these kinds of uh, these ornaments of identity without, mm. without kind of uh, going through the process of, of, let's say, acquiring them internally. Um, so I, I don't know if I have a, a great example off the top of my head, but uh, you can certainly see examples of this if you look at, let's say, early, you know, it's easy to look at, let's say, late 19th century scholarship or, or something along the lines where, you know, there's a famous uh, figure in, in Japan. He was an Irishman who came and he sort of adopted Irish, uh, the Japanese way of life of Cardio Hearn. And he wrote um, some famous books about Japanese culture. And, you know, they are, <clears throat> um, 
I think that they they are open to critique having been written by an outsider, and I'm sure there's people who would who would have called this some form of cultural imperialism, a guy from the West, you know. Uh, but then I do think there is a sense in which his his uh, acquisition of these these cultural or like at least his attempt to acquire this Japanese cultural lifestyle or way of life was sincere and not necessarily mm. motivated by a kind of sense of colonialism or trying to um, take something over that wasn't his. So, but it's an interesting question but he took a kind of academic route i believe he was tenured at the university of tokyo and uh that's where he or what it used to be called something like the imperial university or something like this but uh um yeah i wonder if there's if if we are looking you know at the way in which academics approach different cultural phenomena in, in 100 years we might see similar you know a similar um, you know, we might see similar patterns emerge. Yeah, I, I'm, maybe it's because I'm, well, I think it, it's likely that because I'm reacting to it partly as a political agenda, and I think it's, um, it's, it's likely to, it, it's not that it is without merit as a political agenda. We can all understand the idea but to put it in a political context in which one is judging the merits of someone doing something and then thinking about whether it be kind of prohibited or cancelled or whatever you want to say, I, I suspect that's, that's a kind of... that's likely to generate lots more harm than good. But the basic idea, I think, is a very important one, and the way I would put it is that and, and I got a really nice kind of analogy to draw here. Um, so I increasingly on places like Twitter, I mean, not that I get into too many scraps, but I was someone was sort of demanding that I explain myself about a particular thing. And I knew because I was talking about, you know, you might talk about you know, one of these things that people get themselves very excited about, like whether, you know, reality exists outside of our brains and obviously, uh, you know, or, you know, whether the, whether the, and then they say things like, well, did the, did Jupiter have as many moons before we knew how many moons it had? And the answer is yes, of course. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So my response to that is, well, in fact, I mentioned it early on, which is that if some postmodernist French philosopher who I have checked out and don't think, think is just a bullshit artist, and I think maybe some of them are, um, or there's a fair bit of bullshit in there, but there are plenty who are not, and then there are people who are not, who are not even French, <laughs> not, not, not obviously, well, just the pragmatists and so on, and they're the American pragmatists are not trying to bullshit anyone, they're trying to be more specific about what the truth means and they come to certain conclusions. Now, if I'm going to argue about something difficult like that, I don't certainly wouldn't tell you I'm some authority on it. Um, what I, I, I'm not going to duke it out in an argument because mm. they're not going to fucking well understand it. Um, they won't even understand it to the level that I do understand and I don't understand it all that well. Yeah. And so 
I've taken on occasion in, on Twitter and various other places when someone starts amping me, amping this up, or and and we might uh, and I, I might have said talked about some some thinker saying something, and then I say, well, you tell me, you try and put what they're trying to say in its best possible light. Uh, once you've done that, let's talk. Um, that shuts them up. <laughs> Uh, because they have nothing to say yeah. at that point. Um, but 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 the analogy here is that, uh, and I'm sure this is by no means unique to Australian Indigenous, but in Australian Indigenous knowledge, there are all kinds of knowledges tucked away and you don't get to know anything mm. about them yeah. until and unless. I mean, if you're a man, you don't find out about a whole lot of women's knowledge. If you're a woman, vice versa. And then when you're a young man, presumably it's the same with young women, I, that I was reading on the weekend um, about Aboriginal um, initiation. And it's, it's, it's rather, you know, it's very Australian, <laughs> um, much more downbeat than the sort of dra dramatic uh, American Indigenes um, and the, the, the sort of Joseph Campbell backdrop, you know, yeah. that we can't get out of our heads. Um, it's much more. It's 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 kind of more like Monty Python. There are there are kind of extraordinary things going on, very dramatic theatrical things. Um, they get scared witless and then find out that what they thought happened hadn't happened. It's an extraordinary performance, and the adolescent boys go up to the week on which this happens, knowing none of this. It's just extraordinary. And and so this idea that you are admitted into knowledge when you are ready to start to apprehend it is a fabulous one. And, of course, modern reductive liberal, liberalism is a complete parody of that, which is that you have a free market in ideas and, and, and someone who, has, who shows some care about such things is supposed to debate Donald Trump or anyone else who's been paid, you know, a member of the tobacco lobby or whoever. Uh, I mean, I don't want to just pick right-wing bad guys that, you know, are wokey. Um, uh, it's a completely farcical activity, absolutely farcical activity. Um, there's another principle since I was talking about principles early on, which is a principle that's enunciated in a Monty Python sketch in which the two characters say, I think this sketch has got too silly. And then the other one says, well, I think we better end it then. And then the other one says, okay. And then the screen goes black. Um, so we should do a lot more of that when you find just, and of course you can get caught up with it with your emotions and so on, but I'm, uh, but but I'm not trying to give personal advice. I'm giving advice to the entire political world here that when you're engaged in a completely nonsensical um, argument in which no one's in good faith, and that's like most of the arguments in our uninhabitable political culture, just stop. Um, now, if you represent a cause, you, you're a bit conflicted because you might want to try and defend your cause. But most people should just stop because it's not human life it's just 
It's like a corpse that's having electric currents put through it. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I think it's it's kind of, uh, you know, I know our, our theme in a way was to, be, to speak a little bit about how, um, you know, let's say the difference between this kind of knowledge that's acquired it maybe we could say you know earned in a sense you know even the this, this term you like to use is paying attention you're, you're actually let's say you're actually paying paying something to acquire this knowledge yeah. and yeah. um versus let's well, say the christian the Christ, christian theology has the idea of bearing witness which is different yeah. again but it's it's a similar uh, it's 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 um there's something of you in there mm. uh it's uh, you know it's not all uh, it's not all out there. You, you're you're intensely involved, mm. and if you're not, you haven't turned up. Yeah, and it, it's it seems like this kind of uh, this kind of environment, or the ability to do this, has to be based in, uh, let's say, more of a cooperative atmosphere than uh, than if, let's say, you you believe exclusively in this marketplace of ideas, and all these ideas are kind of competing with each other, and then the the best ideas. You know, they somehow, by some mechanism, it's not completely clear. They sort of beat the the worst the worst ideas, and yep. then you just have good ideas in the end. But um, but as we know, if that, I mean, maybe some something like that could work if the environment was very cooperative and people all like agreed. For example, we're going to avoid certain kinds of um, rhetorical uh, you know approaches, uh, or or try to you know limit the way in which we. Um, we, we attempt to persuade people and well to a subset of of kind of of like let's say you know like you know, like a for example a structured debate or something along these lines where you know you have these robert's rules of order or something along these lines that keep everybody from just you know moving from ad hominem attacks to um arguments about someone's about the motivation of an argument or something like this um, so I'm just looking something up. Um, the, 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 what I would say is, firstly, your appeal to cooperation, I think, is exactly right. Um, uh, and that's kind of the way I used to express this as, do we have dialogue as contest or dialogue as cooperation? Um, now, there's a couple of couple of additional things I'd like to say about that. Now, I read a really nice speech by a philosopher called Christopher Fear, I think, and he's at the University of Hull. And it's actually a, a speech that he gives. It's got a terrible title, I think. It's called The Philosophy of Philosophy. Um, but um, he, he it's, it's a fine speech, and he talks about meeting two people on a train and they say, what do you do? And he says, I'm a philosopher. And they say, what do you do? <laughs> what does that mean? And he says he was so ashamed of his answer, um, you know, which I think he said things like we look at the big picture and we do this, that and the other. And he ends up talking about this term that I hadn't run into and it's used by Collingwood, R.G. Collingwood, who I keep mentioning, um, and this bloke's a, uh, another fan of his, and that explains what I was doing reading this speech. And he talks about the difference between heuristical and dialectical uh, 
dialogue, and I didn't know what heuristical is, but it comes from the and I, and maybe Collingwood coined the expression comes from the Greek, a Greek where, where the root is for strife, and heuristical competition is comp sorry heuristical dialogue heuristical discussion is comp is is discussion as competition, and it is a discussion between two people who defend uh, two propositions and one wins and the other loses or they walk off and agree to differ. And he contrasts this with dialectic. And, of course, we've now, in modern times, people who fancy themselves as thinkers know, you know, that dialectic... I mean, I certainly had in my own mind the idea of dialectic as relating to Hegel and Marx coming after Hegel, and there's, uh, whether or not those two folks deserve this or not, there is a kind of an occult quality to the idea of the Hegelian dialectic. You, it, it's a nice thing to say. It enabled Marx to say he was being truly scientific, whereas other people were just arguing. Um, and, uh, and uh, yes, and so it... It, in, it, it inculcates an idea, a sort of cultish idea that this is an alternative logic and it gives you this key. And I didn't really, I mean, I didn't really fully take on board the idea that this really comes from Socrates. And Socrates' idea, to some extent, it's hard, I think Socrates gets rather too good a press in a lot of ways, but I love this idea that two people can think they're disagreeing and the task is to work out how it is that they really agree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that is sublime. That's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, and it's usually the case. It's not, obviously not the case totally. Mm -hmm. um, but, but and, and even if it's, uh, and even if you want to quibble with that description, isn't that so much better description of how people can learn from each other? Um so, so that's the first point. And then the second point is really, uh, and again, I'm saying uh, it's nice that I'm able to give examples of this because I don't know whether Michael Polanyi got me thinking about this or whether I just sort of was thinking about it and then picked up stuff he wrote. But about this, this idea, and I, have, I, I really want to write something about this and I sort of earmarked it in my own head to do it and I've written three essays so far that I haven't published and they're a bit shit ass because um, I really, but, but I want to propose an idea which is that we always express our dissatisfaction with our public life and our democracy as in equalitarian terms. We express it in terms of fairness and what about us? What about me? It's unfair to me. And I suspect that the reason people are so upset and the lack that they feel, they can't even articulate. So far has this thing sunk from our discourse that it's unthinkable and unspeakable. But, it, well, it is speakable. I'm going to speak to you now. <laughs> and it is that we don't just lack equality. Our democracy hasn't just become 
far less equal over the last few decades, maybe over the last two centuries. Um, it's become it it's its relationship to virtue has uh, virtue has simply doesn't exist as a concept it exists as a rhetorical move i'm right and you're wrong i did the right thing you did the wrong thing there is no sense in which our politics is a is a theater and a world in which virtue strives for its own realization uh, and thinkers including some democratic th well yes including well certainly founders of modern democracy even though they weren't democratic thinkers i'm thinking people like jefferson but that was what the american founding fathers put their faith in that the process of elections would select out from the community a natural aristocracy uh, that's all about virtue that's all about that's all about a polity a political community uh, the idea is that a political community that cannot be virtuous cannot govern itself and will not only be poor nasty brutish and short but also miserable um, so that's a nice thing to anyway that's possibly an introduction to another conversation we plan to have <laughs> uh, but any uh, but but uh, but I sorry uh, to bring it back to Polanyi Michael Polanyi he argued that science was uh, couldn't get by without a high I mean he was okay with science being somewhat competitive couldn't get it by without a high degree of cooperation and that it was a striving for transcendent human value of truth. In other words, it was a theatre of virtue. Uh, and I, I might just read you, if I haven't gone on too long, I will read you, uh, if I can find it quickly enough, um, uh, a passage from Michael Polanyi, uh, about which is brilliantly prophetic because he's writing, I think, in the 1950s, and he's saying you cannot leave science just even to peer review. You cannot leave science just to the opinion of scientists. If scholars fall in love with what other scholars think of them, of course, they can't help but be influenced by that, and that's a good thing. If they make that their number one objective, the place will fall apart <laughs> very much yeah. as it is doing. I'll see if I, I can get you the right um, term. If So this is my words, and then the next paragraph is Polanyi's. If scientists sought other scientists' approval rather than putting themselves to the test of seeking their deserved approval, that's, a, that's an idea of Adam Smith's, by the way, science would be loosed from its fiduciary moorings, debased. Those scientists' income, independence, influence, uh, those scientists' income, independence, influence their whole, stand, quote, whole standing in the world will depend on the amount of credit they could gain in other scientists' eyes. They must, quote, must not aim primarily at this credit, 
but only at satisfying the standards of science, Polanyi goes on. The quickest impression on the scientific world may be made by serving up an interesting and plausible story composed of parts of the truth with a little straight invention admixed to it. Such a composition, if judiciously guarded by interspersed ambiguities, will be extremely difficult to controvert and may stand for years unchallenged. A considerable reputation can be built up and a very comfortable university post gained before this kind of swindle transpires, if it ever does. If each scientist set to work every morning to do the best bit of safe charlat charlatanry which could just help him get into a good post, there would soon exist no effective standards by which such deception could be detected. And our democracy is a, a, is a little the same. Well, I think that's that's uh, really good. And I, yeah, this might be a good point for us to, to pause our conversation. But yeah, I think we have a lot, a lot more things to talk about in future uh, discussions. So uh, well, thank you very much. And I uh, will talk to you. Thank you. Soon. Thanks, Biden.